What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we continue our sermon series on the book of Revelation. We've looked at a vision of Jesus as Lord over all things, then one of the seven churches that John wrote to. Each had its own problem it was dealing with, reminding us that whatever we may face, we can turn to the Lord and that our love for God and for our neighbor can help carry us as we deal with those struggles. And last week, things started to get strange. The writer John described a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. We heard about the four horsemen of the apocalypse raining down terror on the world. And it it makes us ask, why would God do that? Why would Jesus break the seven seals of a scroll that led to terror and disaster in the world? And the hope was to see how our free will is at work. John was saying, look, when people use their free will for evil, this is what happens. There is violence, war, famine, and death. The good news is that we can be part of the solution. We can make a difference as we work to feed people and bring peace so that this world looks a little more like God wants it to. Perhaps those four horsemen of the apocalypse aren't quite as scary as we imagine them to be. Now we look at another section of the book of Revelation. Ralph is going to read for us this. It comes after the day of the Lord is proclaimed and the seventh seal of the scroll is broken. The whole land goes quiet and then like the calm before a storm, lightning and thunder and an earthquake break out. With that, another series of signs appear. This time, it's not seals of a scroll. It's angels blowing trumpets. Seven times this will happen with a third of the earth burned up and a third of the ocean destroyed and a third of the stars wiped from the sky. It all sounds terrible. And then an eagle cries out that it is only going to get worse. We're going to go a little more deeply into the fifth trumpet blast that will hopefully help us understand all of this book better. Let's listen to the vision of John from Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, And from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, 
And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions with stings, and in their tails is the power to harm people for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two woes to come. And from Ezekiel 3.3, he said to me, Mortal, eat this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and in my mouth it was as sweet as honey. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray as we begin. Lord, make us an inclusive community, passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts and minds today, not only that we would better understand the mystery of this unique book, but that we would lean on your mercy, that we would know your love in a deeper and fuller way. Help us in this journey, Lord. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Years ago, I was doing work as a youth minister, and I had to deal with some of the hijinks that young people do. When I first started, there was a pretty serious culture of pranking each other. Most of these were harmless, but when they did it to the wrong person, it would lead to hurt feelings. So it wasn't long before we put an end to all the pranks in youth group. I do remember, though, the very last prank they pulled, because they did it to me. Uh, we were at America's Kazakh for the midwinter advance in Whiting, New Jersey. They have some nice dorm rooms, and some of the young people asked me to go to my room. I thought that was a strange request, but I followed as they led me back to my room. Suddenly, more and more youth from our group were popping out of their rooms. By the time I got to my space, the entire youth group was gathered I was actually really nervous to open the door thinking they were going to maybe dump some water on on me or cover me in, in feathers or something. My one wish was that whatever they had done, it wouldn't be a huge mess to clean up. So as I opened the door with fear and trepidation, I discovered a bright glowing all around. They had taken every object in my room and covered it in tinfoil. They even handed me my Bible completely wrapped in the stuff. I was both relieved and impressed. Tinfoil is not that hard to clean up, but it does take an inordinate amount of time to cover everything in the stuff. They must have worked for hours for a two-minute gag. I told them how much I appreciated that they didn't hurt anyone or wreck anything, that it was very funny and creative, but now they had to clean it all up. It actually worked out uh, about as good as a prank could. Nobody got hurt. Nobody was sad. It was just funny. Uh, But too often things meant one way, meant to be funny or encouraging, are taken another way. Sometimes, like a prank gone bad, we hurt people with the things we do. Sometimes we are more concerned about getting back at someone who hurt us than considering the other person's feelings. I think of a a couple who were married recently. The groom was a little anxious because his parents always seemed to cancel on him around important events because of his sister, who was six years older than him. 
They canceled on coming to his basketball games, even his graduation day because his sister felt sick. All kinds of things for him were pushed aside for his sister, but not his wedding, right? He even told his mom about his fears, and his mother assured him repeatedly that it wasn't going to happen. The day of the wedding, he gets a voicemail from his mother saying they couldn't come because his sister's dog was sick and she was very upset. I'm sure that was crushing to hear, but his best man asked if he could post a video of the wedding on social media as a small gift to the two of them. They both agreed, and after a fun, beautiful wedding filled with taking pictures with the bride's mom and dad, they left for their honeymoon. It wasn't until they got back that they had a chance to watch the video, and boy, were they surprised. The best man had taken all the photos of the bride's family and said in the video how the groom's family was never there for him, and he had the audio of the voicemail about not coming to his wedding playing over the slideshow. I'm sure in some ways it felt good to have his best man stand up for him. But they came back from the honeymoon with hundreds of voicemails from family and friends telling him to take down the video. A lot of them were really upset. The father called his son, the groom, and promised he would make up for missing his wedding, but to just take down the slideshow. And you know what the groom said? He said, sure I will. I'll take it down as soon as you make up for missing the wedding. That hurts, doesn't it? It feels like the son has a right to be angry, and maybe even that the parents deserve some of the shame and guilt they are experiencing, but should a son take that kind of revenge out on his parents? Even if it is deserved, is it really the right thing to do? Is getting revenge okay? Years ago, there was an experiment where scientists were analyzing the brain as people experienced a desire for revenge. It was a money game where they were supposed to get to split the money with their partner, but instead they were betrayed and lost out on the money. The scientists then gave them a chance for revenge, and what they found was the first minute after the betrayal where they're thinking about it really was sweet. It felt good to think about getting back at the other person, but it only felt good for a minute. After that, it got worse and worse. The actual execution of revenge took too much time, emotions, and physical energy. When people went on for days and weeks thinking about revenge, it was terrible for them. Other than that first minute of thinking about getting revenge, it just wasn't worth the cost. So what does that mean for us? Should we get revenge on others when they hurt us? For many of us, we look to the scriptures for guidance on this, and I I would not be surprised if you felt thoroughly confused on what the right thing to do is. We want to be like God, right? God is perfect, and we should model our lives on him. And over and over, the scriptures say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So if God is taking vengeance, doesn't that mean we can too? If you go back to the beginning of the scriptures, you find stories that look like revenge. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Ark of the Covenant. Over and over, it looks like God is destroying people, getting back at them. Add to that the instructions for how the Israelites were to live their lives, and you could build a bigger case for this way of thinking. When someone caused the death of a baby in the mother's womb, there was a punishment for it. 
If you worshipped an idol or a foreign god, you were stoned to death. And maybe most clearly of all, an eye for an eye. If you caused someone to lose an eye, your own eye would be destroyed. This was known as the law of retaliation. And we might think of it as revenge. If something is taken from you, you get to savor in the thought of revenge. You get to bask in knowing what you'll get to do back to them. And then you get to do it, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But that's not really what the law was about. Even in ancient times, people weren't allowed to exact their own revenge. It had to come from a judge. And it wasn't about getting back at the other person in retaliation. It was actually an instruction to a judge to not allow a punishment to be greater than the original crime. It had to be proportional. It's like the McDonald's coffee that got spilled years ago and led to a $2.8 million lawsuit. Sure, the damage was bad. Tens of thousands of dollars bad. But not $2.8 million bad. The punishment had to be equal to the crime. But even that was about a legal system. When it comes to people and how to treat others, Leviticus 19 says this, You shall not take revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's actually the same verse Jesus would quote a thousand years later to the religious leaders who were giving permission for people to get their revenge. The religious leaders would say, if he hurt you, you hurt them right back. God says it's okay, and so do I. No, Jesus was helping people interpret the law the right way. Love your neighbor. So then we come to the book of Revelation, and it might feel like we're right back to the old way of doing things. We were hurt, and now God is out crushing all of our enemies. Maybe we don't get to take our revenge on our enemies, but don't worry. God is going to do it for us. We are relieved of the guilt and responsibility of revenge because God will take it on for himself. Great, right? We get to let God take revenge for us. The locusts in our verse today were allowed to torture them for five months but not kill them. Oh, that sounds just like what we'd like to do to our enemies, doesn't it? Ha! God will show them. In the end, we get to sit back and relax because God will take revenge on these evil people. But if you put those two things next to each other, it doesn't quite add up, does it? Love your neighbor, love your enemy, and oh yeah, God is going to torture them, so don't worry about getting back at people? God's going to do that part? That, do, that doesn't make sense. If God is holy and perfect and we are supposed to love our enemies, wouldn't we assume God also loves his enemies? How can he punish these people if God is love? Let's see if we can make sense of this. The trouble is actually found in the things we assume the book of Revelation is telling us. The first thing John does is describing his own time. The locusts were horses equipped for battle, and the leader is named Abaddon, or in Greek, Apollyon. Who could that be? The answer would be obvious to the churches who received this revelation. This is the emperor Domitian, who claimed Apollo as his deity and made the locust his symbol. 
The angel blowing the fifth trumpet is describing the terrible things the emperor is doing. Then the sixth trumpet blows and the army across the Euphrates invades. Is this God destroying the emperor, bringing wrath and fury? Not exactly. The Euphrates is the eastern end of the Roman Empire. This is where the Parthian Empire begins, who were frequently at war with Rome. As these two forces battle, a third of humanity dies. John is describing how terrible this war is going to be. He even describes a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea. This is not some mysterious description. This is Mount Vesuvius erupting, which destroyed two cities and poured lava into the sea, burning the ships in the port. It was awful, terrible, and not God's vengeance. In fact, John is teaching the exact opposite. This sweeping destruction of a third of the trees and a third of the sea creatures and a third of the stars is actually a revelation of God's mercy. All deserve punishment. All fall short of God's glory. And in this vision, a third of the world being crushed leaves open the opportunity for people to change, to turn away from their wrongdoing. The very end of chapter 9 makes this point. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. The goal was never the destruction. The goal from the very beginning was their repentance and turning back to God, just like Jonah's preaching that saves the city of Nineveh. When we hear these words today, I don't think we should just see a historical story, though. This is not just a description of the past, as a a preterist would say. The vision is meant to provoke us here today to turn to God, too. Every generation must consider the powerful forces at work in this world and ask themselves if they will cooperate with those powers or fight against them. Today, someone might say that, The Roman Empire back then is a lot like maybe Russia today. Another person might look at it and say, no, it's like the United States. Powerful forces warring against each other. And in part, there is truth there. Every time a nation uses its power to abuse its people, to harm others, it is standing in opposition to God. God does not aim to crush the enemy. He calls us to love our enemy. So God reaches out in his mercy, giving people another chance. The warning to all of us is given in this vision. Destruction comes to those who don't turn to God. So the instruction from the scriptures is not for vengeance. It wasn't in the Old Testament, and it isn't in the New either. God offers us a warning, and even now, God's mercy is available. Reminds me of a trip Emily took this past week. Uh, Our nephews were visiting from Pennsylvania, and uh, Emily took them to see the Statue of Liberty. They were right in front of it with hundreds of people taking photos, and they were trying to get up front to get in line to go inside. Emily noticed all of this and all the photographers, and she told the boys to watch out. They were bobbing and weaving through the people, so uh, some taking photos of the statue, others toward the museum. And as they were uh, going along, a woman scoffs at them 
Emily looks up and she sees a woman who's on the, on the far side of the walkway trying to photograph people on the complete other side of the walkway. And Emily told me she thought to herself, what in the world, lady? You're being ridiculous. You want every single person here to stop walking so you can take a picture? Emily was thinking about how she could take revenge on this scoffer. But this is what Emily actually said. She said, oh, sorry, and kept walking. <laughs> that seems just about right to me. We might think in, a, in our mind for a moment about how sweet revenge would be, but to actually do it offers no real hope. It just weighs us down and sets us up to be stuck in a cycle of violence and retribution. Instead, God shows us a path to mercy. If we don't take God's path, we know the result. It will only end in suffering. Let's pursue God's way today for the good of us and our enemy. Let's end with this. In 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a U.S. naval vessel detected a, a Russian submarine and dropped depth charges, trying to force them to the surface. The Russian sub was in mandatory radio silence. They weren't sure what was happening in the world. They just knew they were under attack. Some on board believed war had already broken out between the U.S. and Russia and that they should fire their missiles at the U.S. mainland, including nuclear warheads. To do so meant the top three commanders had to be in unanimous agreement. The captain agreed, the third in command agreed, but one man, Vasily Arkhipov, the second in command, was unsure. In the end, he decided their submarine should not release nuclear warheads. Their submarines surfaced and they were forced to evacuate U.S. waters. At home, Vasily was taunted and booed for his decision. He endured shame in his home country for preventing nuclear war. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't lead to people responding to us the way we would like. Sometimes people disagree. Sometimes they see things differently, but that does not make them our enemy worthy of God's vengeance. Vasily did the right thing. God invites all of us, even now, to turn from our sin and follow his path. Let go of your revenge. Let go of your hate and seek the wisdom the scriptures point us to. As bad as the world might be, what really deserves our attention is the rapturous joy of worshiping God. This whole section of, of trumpets blowing ends with a glorious celebration, a heavenly chorus singing, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.